The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, your host who loves all of these books, but is getting increasingly excited the further we get into The Shadow Rising. And I am joined, of course, by Greg, who is probably baffled by how much I am excited by this book, given that so far it's not that much different from anything we've read before. Greg, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well. I will say the the chagrin of my day is my kids got in a typical sibling wrestling fight on top of my copy of the shadow rising today and it survives but the cover's like all bent to hell and i'm like oh man i have to keep reading this book till august and now it looks like (laughs) junk so uh alas such is the life of a dad but uh you know it's amazing to me that uh by the end of today's episode we are already a hundred pages in and while that may not be a a high percentage of this book. It is kind of shocking that, um, you know, we've only done a few chapters and are are moving right along. So uh, it's great. And I am enjoying it. I look forward to seeing what you're so excited about. And I think we maybe get some hints this week, although who really knows? Yeah, we definitely get hints every week. I just can't tell you which ones they are. Uh, What was your just kind of overall impression about these two chapters? Because I could see this either being the week where you went like, yes, they're leaning into character and it's really interesting. Or the week where you say, oh, we're back in the Robert Jordan pattern of like not a whole lot happens in the early chapters. What was your impression after reading these two today? I mean, usually my frustration with the early chapters is that they are dealing with the fallout from, um, you know, the last chapter. If if you think of the classic like plot diagram, little engine that could mountaintop, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's usually the climax and then the falling action. And the way Robert Jordan structured some of those early books, it was like the climax happened at the very end. And then the falling action fell into the next book to kind of wrap up. And that's, yeah. that's not atypical of a good fantasy book or film series, really, because it's I mean, I, I actually I think of Lord of the Rings Return of the King and all they did was kind of handle the fallout and people got so angry. They're like, end this dang movie. They did. Nine times. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so I I do see why why this this uh, works. Uh, perhaps better. Um, And so uh, it is kind of interesting, but I will say this reading for today felt more like the fallout from the opening of this book than it did fallout from last book. I I do think there's a little of each, but so much of it was concerned with, um, you know, the aftermath of these vision dream attack Mm -hmm. things, who knows what they are. Uh, You know what they are. I don't know what they are. Um, uh, So uh, it's interesting to kind of track how um, that that affected all our characters. But um, it will, I guess my one other global comment is it's nice to have everybody together. I mean, it's not literally everybody, but it's more than we got together at different times uh, for a lot of the last book. And seemingly people talking like they're going to have real conversations this book instead of just hiding things from each other. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Yeah, if you want to have some real solid conversations between Wheel of Time characters, I can point you to like 10 chapters throughout the entire series. For the most (laughs) part, this is going to be a who's saying what to who kind of situation. Uh, Given that this is overall, I think you're right. It's interesting to see the fallout from last week, but there's not a whole lot of like brand new introduction. Why don't we immediately jump into a recap that will mostly be things that possibly happened the previous week? Chapter three. Wait, wait, by... Please. Yeah, I was going to say, by which you mean a recap of chapter three, reflection, and then 
later to be joined yes. by chapter four strings, which we had not yet named this episode. So please dive into your summary of chapter three. Thank you for reminding me how speeches work, despite the fact that I did competitive speech for four years. Introductions are important. <laughs> chapter three, reflection. <laughs> uh, the stone is significantly busier than Perrin expected for the hour. Um, and he and Fayil are making their way through the servants' corridors. And Fayil kind of explains to him why the servants would be around, what the timing means. And Perrin kind of thinks that she knows a lot more about this world than he does, probably because her father is relatively wealthy. He comes around the corner to where Rand's room is, and there is a small crowd around the chambers. Um, first off, he is greeted by High Lord Torian, who is one of the defenders of the stone, or is at least kind of he heading up a group of them. And Perrin basically acknowledges that he is in no way actually the one guarding Rand's room. He then sees Berylaine walking by, and uh, Fayil comments on... Um, Berylaine being in Rand's room, and then Perrin misunderstands and says something that Fayil thinks means that he is checking out Berylaine. There is an enormous amount of confusion. Fayil is angry, and then Perrin says he doesn't understand what's going on, and there is a moment where it is obvious Fayil is surprised that he actually doesn't know what is going on, gives him a kiss, <laughs> and decides to leave. Um, Perrin then approaches Rand's chambers more closely, um, and he actually kind of briefly recalls the fact that these are chambers that were made for the king all the way back prior to Arthur Hawkwing, who ended the practice of having kings, and so they have been vacant since. Uh, Perrin then meets the real guardians of Rand's room, the Aiel, where first he is stopped by Bane, um, who he literally picks up and moves out of the way. She suggests that they play Maiden's Kiss. He still doesn't know anything about what that means, and then he makes his way into the room. He immediately sees all of the broken mirrors and the blood and all of the aftermath from the previous chapter, and tells the Aiel immediately to go get more rain. Rand tells him to shut the door, he does so, and then he immediately goes and tries to stop the bleeding from the wound on his side, and thinks that if he were not here, Rand likely would have died before Moraine arrived. Um, Perrin also uh, realizes that he needs to check in on Matt, but he cannot because he is literally keeping Rand alive. He gets just a little bit of a description of what is going on, and worries that Rand might be um, either going mad or the cause of what is happening here. Um, and when he asks Rand what he is going to do as they are waiting for Moraine, Rand simply says what they least expect, but provides no more details. At this point, Ruark, the clan chief of the Aiel, enters with a captain behind him, but the captain is denied entry by the Aiel. Uh, Ruark apparently talks to Berylaine, and so he knows the real story of what is going on here. Rand is upset that Berylaine told him, but he reassures her that she's not going to tell anyone else. Um, at this point, Moraine then arrives, uh, along with Lan. Uh, Lan and Ruark actually joke, which is both amazingly surprising and causes Perrin to wonder which of them is more deadly, which is a fun hypothetical experiment. Uh, Moraine then heals Rand. He seems to be more or less entirely recovered other than the wound in his side, which continues to not uh, completely heal. And at this point... Um, a couple of things happen. First off, Rand asks if that is the wound that is going to kill him, and Moraine says that he reads too much and understands too little. Uh, Rand then asks Moraine to give him any information he needs, and she basically denies it, saying that he is too curious, and when uh, Rand is stubborn in the face of this, Lan actually compliments him, saying, Taishar Manatharin, um, and then uh, we get a brief description from Moraine about what she thinks happened. She says, first off, that she assumes Rand lost control of the power, but Rand tells her that he was not channeling, he was awake, there was no possibility. We do learn an interesting little detail here that it is possible to channel while one is sleeping, but you can only channel spirit, not any of the other powers. And then once we learn that Rand was not channeling, Moraine says that there is another explanation. She says that this is too simple and too complex to be one of the Forsaken, and so what she suspects that these are what will later become known as bubbles of evil. She describes these as cracks in the Dark One's prison, allowing some sort of miasma to bubble up to the surface. She says that eventually the entire world is going to need to deal with these bubbles of evil, but for the moment they seem to be attracted to Taviran, and so it makes sense that Rand, Matt, and Perrin would be the ones who are facing the immediate danger from it. Um, Moraine then says that time is running out, the Terrans no longer fear her, and then uh, we basically have her say you need to do something immediately and Rand says that he won't be directed by anyone he's going to be the one making decisions and he won't be rushed Rand then dismisses them all uh, saying that he needs to sleep but Bane and 
Shiad refused to leave, saying that they're going to dress his wounds unless he can stand up, and obviously he cannot. At this point, Ruark says that Rand still hasn't fulfilled any of the Aiel prophecies, and he may not actually be he who comes with the dawn, and says that Rand will know what to do if he is actually the one. At this point, Perrin realizes that things are still in motion and that there is a lot of danger around and thinks he needs to get Fael to leave the stone. And that is how we end the chapter. So a lot happens in this chapter, but almost all of it is people talking to Rand while he almost bleeds to death. What were your thoughts on kind of all of the character work we get here? Because I don't think there's actually a ton of plot being developed other than a few hints here and there. Yeah, it um it had a kind of air of like an Agatha Christie uh mm. mystery where like everybody's kind of all together and the interactions matter and how they're talking to each other is dropping subtle clues. Um and yet doesn't really feel like I could grab onto any single strand of that, right? Yeah. These are things that later it'll be like, "Oh, I remember when that began more than I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. this thing happened here. Um, but I, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean it wasn't enjoyable. Um, yeah. It is fun to have characters interacting with Rand again or kind of around Rand, if not with him yeah. um, in this moment. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, right? This could have, I think, very easily been a Rand chapter, right? It's literally called Reflection. We are dealing with a character who had to murder a bunch of his reflections in the previous chapter. And yet the fact that it's Perrin, I think you're exactly right. It gives us more access to Rand than we had at any point in The Dragon Reborn, but we still have that kind of feeling of distance from him that I think is really interesting, given the fact that we basically spent two and a half, or not two and a half, probably two full books, where Rand is the only only character that we really had full access to. Um, that being said, I actually found, to me, maybe the most interesting part of this chapter is before Rand even appears on screen. I thought that the Fael and Perrin pseudo-conflict was really well drawn and kind of brought me in in a way that I maybe didn't expect it, given that it's a chapter about Fael being jealous about Perrin not actually being interested in a woman. What was your take on the perrin fael Barrelane thing that happens at the beginning of this chapter? Um, I I did think it was a lot of fun, and I, it does feel like this couple has leveled up, um, yeah. and not in an unrealistic way, but when, you know, it, it's a classic trope when two characters uh, who are interested in each other go through something traumatic. It's like yeah. their relationship is two or three steps advanced all of a sudden. Um, it's, re it's related to the question you asked, but I will also kind of say it's a bit of a global thing is I loved how much parents' narration emphasized smell yeah. um, that, you know, they're kind of these throwaway moments where he's he smells uh bear lane bear, yes. i missed how you pronounce it yeah bear lane um uh and that is kind of part of why he appears to be like interested in her or kind of giving her the eye where yes. it seemed like no he was actually getting a scent off of her and and so we get these kind of very subtle hints that he's wolfy um mm -hmm. like the amerlin seat making fish references it was that kind of level of like yeah. when you catch each of them you're kind of giving yourself a chuckle but not not really um being overwhelmed by it or or having the action uh dissimilar from that so then the moment with um you know, Fael, it, it was a little bit of a play on what we saw with the like, you don't have to protect me. Yeah. And this uh, was very clear that, you know, whereas before she eventually stood down and was like, OK, I understand you had to do this to protect me. She's like, I can handle a Terran Lord. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I if a man does more than look, then he f gets what's coming. But, you know, um, there's no harm in looking, essentially. Yeah. Tiny, tiny correction, just because this is what I do. Sure. Uh, Berlin is not a Terran lord. She is the queen of the country of Mayen, which is just to the east of Tyr. That being said, exactly right. Uh, the moment that I kind of thought was really interesting here. Oh, please. I want to nitpick your nitpick. Yes. So I, I think I misspoke because I did know that. Yeah. But um, Berlin, it is revealed, was working with the lord who I'd so, so yes. we have two characters. We have the 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 Lord who eyed Fael, which is kind of the first part of the the yes. Fael parent conflict. Yeah. And then parent oh, right. sniffs yep. Bear Lane. And so that's the second part. But then we do get the hint that those two were working together because there's a hushed conversation we get snippets of. And so that made me feel 
I still don't understand those full dynamics, but it mm-hmm. made me feel like, oh, Rand actually really stepped, uh, avoided stepping in a trap here. Yeah. Sorry to kind of degrade no. poor Bear Lane into a trap. But but like, you know, uh, clearly she was put out there as bait as a part of a political scheme. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I think it was clear from the beginning there was more to that than, than yeah. was apparent. But it's interesting that it's kind of confirmed very quickly that Rand's kind of all, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was altruistic, but it was like his, you know, his disinterest, if nothing yeah. else, uh, was ended up being kind of a saving grace. Absolutely. Uh, and I actually thought the moment of this that worked best for me is when Fayil is commenting on Verlaine and she thinks that she is telling Karen, you know, she's never going to be into you. But the way that she phrased it is so close to being accurate. She says, uh, Someone like that does not hunt the bear, she hunts the sun, which is a perfect metaphor Mm. if she had just said the word wolf instead of bear. And so I both (laughs) thought that that was like a really effective moment of her kind of summarizing where bear lane is at. But also it's it's a sign that Fayil is kind of picking up on something about Perrin that is causing her to think of him as a bear. Mm. And she's almost right. Yeah, almost uh picking up on the fact he's there's something off about this dude and so on. Yeah, that is, that is nice. And I, I actually also just kind of liked that as like a metaphor to throw out at somebody. Yeah. Like, like we all have those people at work who aren't aiming for like one promotion it, in academia. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not looking for the next level of being a professor. It's like constantly finding a way to the deanship or yeah. to the vice presidency. And like, you see these people come in and they are hunting the sun, right? And they, whether it's within an institution or looking to jump through your institution to a better institution very quickly, yeah. it is kind of a, a type. So I liked that as, as a bit of phrasing as well as the the kind of play that you're noting. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the only other thing that I had is there is just that lovely moment at the end of this section where Fayil, I think the narration is literally, she stared at Perrin and seems surprised by what she saw. And then she's like, oh, yeah, you weren't into her. Uh, You're so innocent. I love it. And she walks away. And (laughs) that was the moment that I was just like, oh, my God, I have been in that relationship. I have thought that (laughs) someone has thought that I was checking out another woman. I was just like, hey, look, those are cool pants, right? Like, we've all been there. (laughs) The moment rang true. I thought it worked. Yeah, uh, my version of that is I have such a good memory that um, at times, I, I guess I have proven the opposite on this, but but you seem like you're kind of into somebody because you remember an obscure detail about them. Yeah. And then you're like, no, I just I just remembered that thing you told me that one time. And, and yeah. that's that's all that was. So, yes, definitely. Absolutely. Um, I think then the next moment that actually worked for me is just a little bit of history. I don't know why, but the world building around the king's chambers having been empty for a thousand years because Arthur Hawkwing got rid of kings and they never came back just felt like one of those things that it's like, if you've ever traveled to a random town in Europe, they all have some story about that from 600 Mm. years ago, right? Like there's some weird historical reason why things are the way they are. And this is just another moment of Robert Jordan kind of making the world ring true in a paragraph or two. Um, Did that stand out to you at all? Or was there anything else in this kind of early section that you were like, that's a fun detail? Uh, I really liked within the moment you're discussing how they say uh, Arthur Hawking united everything from the spine of the world all the way to the sea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I, I liked that. And you know, thinking again about um, like European history, you know, we think of Napoleon or others who kind of conquer and sweep through the whole continent and then they recede eventually or they, yeah. they the empire falters. Um, so I liked that moment within that detail. And then the other resonance it had for me, which uh, I've already confessed last episode that I'm in the middle of a Lord of the Rings reread. Um, I don't like fantasy books, but I am rereading Lord of the Rings. Um, and it reminded me of uh, Gondor, how um, yeah. the king uh, Isildur um, fell and then left a steward of the throne, the current steward being um, uh, Denethor by the time the, the War of the Ring happens. Um, but I think uh, the book establishes very clear. I don't think they say in the film he's the 26th. So yeah. it kind of had that same ring. It's like, oh, we we had a king but mm-hmm. we're just going to continue to have these stewards and not fill the throne and and the film very nicely has 
Denethor on a lower thorn, a lower throne b- below yeah. the one that the king would sit on. And there's some uh, Cersei in Game of Thrones uh, mm-hmm. is, is kind of like that for a while, too. So, you know, definitely a historical thing a lot of these fantasy uh, series are building on. But I, I did like that detail. Um, in my mind, you know, I when we mention Arthur Hawkwing, I think King Arthur. And then uh-huh. I think like, but then he went across the sea and it's like, you know, I'm I'm looking for the analogy of England and then going to America and these these things and these powers. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, whenever something like that happens, I don't know if I've said this on air or I just curse you every time I'm there. I always think back to the weird moment where you pointed out that it sounded like they were talking about Neil Armstrong. And I'm oh, like, yeah. what could this be? This is really our world and this is really our um, and I understand, and and the show has played a little more into trying to show that this might be our world, and I assume those answers are like ten books away. But it is very curious to me to think about the way these these pieces might fit together if this is really our world. It's kind of always on the like furthest back boiler, uh, yeah. back burner in my mind, and I will someday uh, think of that after we solve the twenty seven problems in front of that. That is the correct order to be approaching this. Yes, we have many, many things (laughs) to deal with before we get to that big picture question. Um, And I think that tied up in all of that deep world, like this history is just so rich and he's able to build on it, that that is why, to me, the next moment in the chapter, Perrin and the Aiel work so well, is because they feel like the Aiel feel like such a distinct culture with its own history and its own traditions that when Perrin is confronted by it, you can see how everyone else would potentially be like overwhelmed or not know how to interact. And it's a scary thing, I'm sure, to have Bane and Shiad put their spears to your neck. But Perrin does the exact perfect thing in my mind. He literally just picks Bane up and puts her down on the other side of him and walks into the room. And it's clear (laughs) that the Aiel have no idea what to do with that and respect it. And so that like cultural clash that is broken up by I am bigger than you is another moment that I'm just like, yeah, that's playing with the dynamics in a way and then just throwing them out when it's not necessary. Like I thought that worked really well. Well, and it comes on the heels of, um, I think uh, Bane puts her spear to his neck Mm-hmm. And he like just grabs it, but it it's very clear, like in the time it took him to grab the one, another one had appeared. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like these warriors could just shish kebab him if, if they yeah. needed to or wanted to. But there is something about like they don't want to. They need yeah. to assert their power in their culture, but it's just they they have no vocabulary for dealing with it, like you said. And, yeah. and it it is it is fun and it. It showed to me, I guess, I it, I really thought about like that shows that they um well, I don't my mind changed a little by the end of the chapter. But in yeah. this moment, it was like they respect Rand so much they're not going to hurt or harm anybody in his inner circle. You know, it's yeah. like the boss's nephew or something. You can't fire him because he's he's as close as it comes to essentially your messiah it sounds like so yeah (laughs) and then i think the follow-up to that moment is really great they're like yeah we can't do anything to you perrin but you just picked me up do you want to make out like that also rang (laughs) true right like there's a moment where he they're they're very very clearly like look at each other and they're just like okay that was kind of rad and i appreciate that like (laughs) these warriors are just like yeah that's impressive um We then get into the Rand section of the chapter, right? And this is where I now have a big old gap in my notes where I don't have a lot of things to say, right? There's a lot of summarizing of the previous chapter. There's a lot of figuring out like who did what and was it the Forsaken and all of that. And to me, my big takeaway was just how quiet and withdrawn Rand was, right? He's not volunteering information. When Perrin asks him questions, he gives really vague answers. You know, he says something along the lines of like, I just need to surprise them and won't even suggest what he's thinking about in an attempt to surprise them. Like his mindset is kind of where my focus was on for a good four or five pages where I didn't really have many other notes. Um, Did you either have anything to say about the early section of this chapter or what was your take on kind of our first presentation of Rand from the outside because I feel like it looks very different from the Rand that we got from the inside in the previous chapter. Um, he's starting to feel a lot like Moraine, like he's playing a game we can only sense a part of. Um, yeah. And it is him who he fingers, f- points his finger at 
Sorry, that got graphic. He points, since we were just in an oddly sexual spear scene, uh, he points his finger at uh, the Forsaken and yeah. says, maybe it's Samael who's in Ilion. Um, Ithilion or Ilion? Ilion. 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 God, rereading Lord of the Rings is a really because Ilion sure. is Lord of the Rings. So yeah. stop. Uh, I I need to finish that and then move on. Um, and so uh, there's there's uh kind of a sense that he's already plotting how he'll get his revenge and overcome yeah. this, and there's a sense that um you know he's working through that while the others are just trying to catch up on this moment. So um and I I. I will either say this is my note on this section or if I have them in the wrong order, you know, the big revelation here then is, is once Moraine enters and mm -hmm. she explains it's not the forsaken. And um, I was thinking about how last episode we talked about how, when somebody's like, it's Rand, we're like, it's definitely not Rand. And then somebody's yeah. like, it's the Forsaken. It was like, it's definitely not the Forsaken. When she presents this bubbles theory, which is, yeah. this is weird. I mean, I love it because it used the word uh, miasma, which is just yeah. a great word uh, at any time. Um, but when she presents that, I'm like, okay, that's it. And yeah. I was trying to figure out in my head, is that just because it's from Moraine, is it because it's spoken in such authority? Part of it is that it's new, right? And mm -hmm. I have a little trouble kind of reconciling that with the cock crowing because that seemed yeah. like such a clear, you put one guy in the bell tower, he crows like a, a cock and then um, everybody joins the, takes their action at once yeah. or what have you. So it seems weird that it would be kind of part of something more supernatural, something less controlled. But the idea, and, and I'll just repeat back the idea to you to make sure I have it right. Yeah. So essentially, as the the bonds on the Dark One loosen slightly, there can be these kind of uh, pockets of dark darkness or bubbles of energy that escape yeah. from those, and they can kind of percolate wherever they might be in the world, but the Taviran are going to draw them closer to, to them and... So Moraine is the only one who seems to be not surprised at all that all of them face this at once since they're all Taviran. Yeah, that's exactly spot on. I want to give us vocabulary for this. I think I'm using a bunch of words that are not combined in this way in the chapter, but I'm not giving anything away. These will eventually be called bubbles of evil. So that I think is going to be the easiest kind of phraseology for us. But your description of what a bubble of evil is and where it comes from is exactly right. The Dark One's prison is cracking. That means things can get out through those cracks. They rise into the world in some way and are drawn towards Taviran. And I think you're exactly right to kind of question what is going on with the rooster crowing, I refuse to call it a cock, uh, in the previous chapter. <laughs> um, and I think that, to me, what that says is maybe this was one bubble, right? The fact that it's happening simultaneously indicates that this isn't separate events, but maybe like one thing that happened to burst all around all three of them at the same time. That being said, that's all I've got for you on that detail. I think we're summarizing this concept right. I think this is a new thing. And you're right to ask, why do we trust Moraine so much? And I think the answer for me is because she can't lie. But it's worth noting, she never outright says this is what happens. She just explains the theory of how this could happen so that none of it is necessarily true. She didn't outright say it is. And so the no lying thing isn't as helpful as we think. Um, mm. I, I think that's that's the right kind of big picture thing to to latch on to here. Right. Rand is, you know, really he's I, I think comparing him to Moraine was really smart and not something I would have initially thought of. But you're exactly right. He's playing his own game now. He's trying to be ahead of people and it feels like he's falling behind. He's keeping secrets in a way that he hadn't before. And all of that, I think, adds up to a really interesting chapter for Rand, but one where I don't have a ton to say because mostly what it's doing is laying out what all the mysteries around him are at this point. Um, that's why, for me, all of my notes are about this new character that we have, Ruark, who is mostly fun because he made a joke with Lan and Lan appreciated it. And that shouldn't happen. <laughs> I do like Ruark a lot. Before we move on from yeah. Rand, I just want to throw out, it was in your summary, but it seemed notable to me that Rand has been reading up on the prophecies. Yeah. Um, that he, he you know, because that I, I just love that as a character detail because it's like, Oh, yeah. If I suddenly figured out I was the chosen one, I would read everything to figure out what the chosen one is going to be. Yeah. So this idea of there is going to be a wound that causes him to spill his blood on the mountain and he's kind of 
flippantly saying, is this the one? And Moraine's retort of you read too much and understand too little is really nice. And I want to throw that out at every faculty meeting I go to. Uh, not really. I love my colleagues, but um, it's it's certainly a helpful dynamic to start to think about. Well, yeah. you know that. Well, why it's interesting dramatically is because that brings up all of Greek drama. Right. Which yeah. is if you know the prophecy is true, you do everything to prevent it and yet still end up falling into it. And so that uh, is really a, an interesting thread to pull at. Yeah. Um, Ruark entered with such oh, sorry i'm gonna stop trying. you before yeah. you move on now uh, i just want to know yeah. you're exactly right to highlight uh moraine's response to his question you uh read too much and know too little i just also want to highlight we should be very very careful at paying attention to when moraine does not give yes or no answers to yes or no questions right because not mm. only is that an accurate answer from Moraine she's like you read too much whatever it's also her not answering her question because I'm pretty sure if she did she'd be bound by the oaths to say yes mm, interesting um so Ruark yeah pausing we're good we're uh entered with such force I mostly thought this is a character I've forgotten because it seemed like he was like so present in this group. I'm like, he was in like four books or something and I missed it or. Uh... Did you forget so him? Fill me in. Because he was in the last <laughs> chapter of the previous book. Um, he was the one who revealed that um, the Aiel are known as the people of the dragon. He's the one who revealed that they came out of the waste because they knew that the stone might fall. So this is certainly our first character introduction, but it is worth noting his name has come up before. That being said, you're right. He just shows up and is a fully formed character and I love it. I am about to give a metaphor that you will not understand at all, but some of our listeners might. Um, my favorite moment maybe I've ever experienced in a podcast was listening to the first episode of uh, the second season of Critical Role. When all of the character or when all of the voice actors showed up and they clearly had characters in mind and they had a voice, but they were kind of figuring them out. And then Laura Bailey shows up and just puts on a masterclass of having a fully formed, ridiculous, insane character within 30 seconds of that game starting. And that's what Ruark felt like to me here, right? Everyone else is still kind of finding their fit footing and who is Barrelane and where are we now? And Ruark is just like, nah, 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 I got this. And just shows up and <laughs> dominates the conversation. And it's it works for me, right? And then to give him the contrast of Lan later on is, is really effective. Um, I don't really have too much else to say other than like great character, had some good zingers. What were your thoughts on Ruark? Yeah, the the shaving joke made me chuckle when it was yeah. said, and then I thought it was very easy to kind of picture the fact they're they're giving each other kind of the half smile, which in those people is the equivalent of like knee slapping and, and yeah. tears streaming down their faces. Um, you know, I I always appreciate in class if I make some weird joke or reference, and there's like two kids who get it, but they like it strikes them like deep to their core. Yeah, you're like, yes, you are my people, you are my students. Um. Yeah, uh, so that interaction, and I guess it kind of merges into the last moment of the book, which I had trouble not feeling that it was a retcon, um, mm -hmm. because the end of the last book did feature that revelation of like, we are the people of the dragon, and that's the prophecy. And essentially, if I understood the end of this chapter correctly, it was like, We'll see. Uh, this is yeah. uh, the first step of seven steps of, of confirmation on whether yeah. he's the bringer of the dawn or not. Um, so it's like they're hopeful. Um, you know, I, I don't have the right religious vocabulary for that. It's like the appearance of, of one stigmata or, um, yeah. you know, the Dalai Lama has to pick out the objects from the blanket. And it's like they picked one, but there's four to pick or what have yeah. you. Um, it, so it, it feels like we're we're kind of easing off of the last chapter, last book. It it almost reminds me, if we're going for a religious metaphor, it almost reminds me of the way that like early Judaism dealt with the uh, kind of emergence of Christianity, right? The response was like, mm -hmm. yes, we definitely had prophecies of a guy showing up and doing some of the things that that guy did, but I don't think he's the savior, right? I think someone else is coming yeah. later, right? And that's the story that I think we're getting from the Aiel here. They're like, yes, some of our prophecies are being fulfilled, but those are the prophecies that tell us when he who comes with the dawn will arrive, 
Rand is still the most likely candidate to be he who comes with the dawn, but it ain't no guarantee. Someone else could kind of pick up the mantle and there's nothing saying the dragon reborn must be the same as he who comes with the dawn. So I think that that mm -hmm. kind of overlap, but not complete overlap in prophecy kind of rings true to me, right? I'm, I was raised obviously as a Catholic. And so I'm used to like Abrahamic religion where you get three different religions that all have very similar, you know, initial traditions and then very different endpoints. That's kind of what this feels like to me, right? These are cultures that were once probably closer to one another and had similar prophecies. And now as they have grown apart, there's these differences and it's not clear what is the same and what is different. But that works for me, right? I think to some degree, the idea of different parts of the world having different prophecies that may be the same or at least describe the same situation, but in different ways just is just like, yeah, I don't think I've ever been to you know two different countries that had exactly the same traditions. And so this rings true to me. Yes, we were just in an intense conversation uh, in the car with my son the other day about um, he's like, I heard in Germany they get visited by santa claus and saint nicholas and chris kringle and mm. like i don't know where he picked up that particular misreading but it's like oh like trying to explain like well it's actually the same holiday and the same figure that everybody mm. loves it's just you yeah. know different cultures and different names and then he has a uh, a step grandfather from denmark so we're today we we're like ask yeah. him about denmark and my son's just like nah I'm good. Like he's, he's over it. He, he doesn't yep. have any more questions to ask, but, but it is that kind of thing where it, it is the same mythology through a lot of different lenses and customs that often celebrate the same things while being different in their, yeah. in their own fashion. So it's, it's very good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I it works. It, well, it, yeah. all of that, it just feels very real. And, yeah, and I think totally. you likening that to Christianity and Judaism um, makes it feel quite authentic. Absolutely. Um, I only had one more moment in this chapter that stood out to me, um, and it is Lan complimenting Rand. Rand responds to mm. Moraine's pressure to make a decision by basically saying, like, no, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. I will take your advice, but I make the decisions. Now leave. And uh, Lan, under his breath, where everyone can kind of hear him, but not completely, compliments Rand by saying Taishar Manatharan, which is A exactly you know, like a reasonable thing right we know that people from Menethrin are known for being like stubborn asses and so what rand is doing is an exact kind of exemplification of that but it's also worth noting literally speaking what land said is true blood of manatharin which rand does not have and so I think it's a really <laughs> interesting kind of thing that lan is like you are of those people even though I know that literally mm -hmm. you are not of those people. And so it's almost like a multi-layered compliment that I just wanted to highlight before we moved on. Did you have anything to say about that or any last notes on the chapter before we move on to the next? Um, That is really nice. And one of the last conversations Rand and Lan had, or mm -hmm. at least when we saw them, I think this is back at the end, at the start of book two, yep. was about his fatherhood and how like you may not, he may not, he may have yep. been your adopted father but that doesn't make it less true and yeah. i think at the time we discussed how that's a good message and it seems like we need more fantasy that puts emphasis on those relationships as much as blood relationships uh yeah. whereas a skywalker um so uh thinking about how those uh that you can celebrate both of those i think is yeah. really a nice piece of mythology and i think there are you know families and people around the world who want yeah. to see that part of their identity affirmed as strongly as whatever uh their genetics uh happen to be so um my only other global note for the chapter is it seems like i took from all of them that there's this kind of hastiness to get out of tear right um to tear out of there nice. cue the drum the rim shot uh all right uh but also just that everybody seems i i just wrote um kind of uh uneasy alliances right yeah. like everybody is seemingly ready to work together and follow rand but all of those relationships, even Rand and Moraine, Moraine's like, I'm ready to be your advisor. I like, it sounds like she's like, I'll be your, you know, uh, your chief advisor, but you got to listen to me. You got to tell me what you want to do. And we got to talk together. And so it just seems like nobody's quite sure what these relationships should be, despite all the goodwill to work together. 
And I think that's exactly right. And then it's emphasized by what we get in the next chapter, which is finally a character who knows what all of those relationships are and how to interact with them in chapter four, (laughs) Strings. So Tom is forging a letter in a High Lord's hand that says your husband suspects and he thinks that he is going to arrange for High Lord Tadosian to find it somewhere where his wife might have left it. Um, When he hears a knock at the door, he hides all of his things. He quickly puts away his writing desk and his inks and whatever. Um, And then uh, we also get a brief description of Tom, the ladies man, and all of the different like scarves and things around his room. And he thinks like, oh, I don't really think about the women very much. They're just here and then they leave. Uh, He then limps his way to the door, um, despairing at his age and welcomes Matt into the room. Um, Tom is surprised that Matt is there at this time and also that he's not joking around. Usually Matt shows up and immediately makes fun of him for his room. Um, He uh, offers Matt a game of stones, but Matt immediately changes the subject, asks him if anything odd has gone on, and then Matt explains what is happening and asserts that Rand is mad and that is the reason why everything is going wrong. Um, Tom wonders why he and Matt haven't already left, and he thinks that um, he's basically trying to keep an old uh, debt that he had. Uh, Clearly, he is thinking about his nephew. Um, And then he also thinks that he wants to keep Rand protected from the great game, how he's been kind of manipulating things and trying to keep the high lords busy amongst themselves so they don't have an opportunity to gang up and create problems for Rand. Uh, Matt then offers Tom the opportunity to run away together, and Tom says that Matt has been talking about leaving Tyr since the moment that they arrived. But he says that he hasn't left. uh, I'm sorry, Matt. Matt says that he hasn't left because Moraine is watching and has had many of the servants kind of looking out after him. But Tom says that he could get away anytime. He mentions that Matt is especially good at kind of hiding and sneaking, and he means that as a compliment. Um, But then he says that, quote, something always comes up. It is clear that Tom is going to be suggesting that this is a Taviran thing, but Matt does not want to hear that explanation. And so he instead suggests that it is Rand's friendship keeping him there. Uh, Matt says that he's starting to get strange feelings that something momentous is coming and Tom suggests that he talks to Moraine or Nynaeve about it but Matt says he will not have any Aes Sedai in his life Um, he says that he is going to leave immediately but Tom very quickly talks him into waiting until the morning and they play some stones first Tom or sorry Matt kicks Tom's ink box and causes Tom to be very frustrated because it probably ruined all of his hard work but then Tom notes that Matt has already forgotten the urgency of leaving and he suspects that by the time the game of stones is done that Matt will not even remember that he was going to leave in the morning and then tom thinks that all of his efforts are worth it if he can pay off his 15 year old debt i thought this was a really interesting chapter if for no reason other than the fact that being in tom's head is really interesting compared to everyone else (laughs) it's kind of fun to get an expert's perspective after having so many chapters from you know 17 and 8 year olds on the outside looking in um what was your thought on this chapter it's it's brief but i had a lot of fun with it uh, I would say I had fun, but probably not as much as you did. Um, I think um, to me, it was like everything was just demonstrating what it is uh, like to be near a Taviran. And then mm. they can't even talk about that being a Taviran. So, um, you know, I, I'm not going to think of a good example, but a lot of times films and books need to have like throwaway lines that explain why the characters don't just run away. Um, yeah. uh, and, and like give up on this. And this felt like that, like we need to understand what it feels like to be under the sway of a Taviran, which is not some kind of mind control, but it's just whenever you think now's the time for me to get away, it's like, eh, it doesn't really seem that urgent anymore. And, yeah. and so I liked that a- aspect of it, that they at once feel in control of themselves and unable to control themselves. Like <laughs> they are consciously making choices and recognizing undue influence while succumbing to that undue influence, it seems. So yeah. um, that's a little bit fun, but that's about all I took from it. Cause like you said, it's also yeah. very short. Uh, it's, it's like, And maybe my expectations were too high. (laughs) No, I I think that that's the right read. That to me is the biggest takeaway. I think it really highlights, you're exactly right, kind of the mechanics of Taviran in a way that we hadn't fully gotten before. Um, The only other thing that I really had standing out to me is literally like the first couple paragraphs of this chapter. Tom is just really, really, really good at the game of, or not the game of houses, that's Game of Thrones. This is the great game (laughs) or Das de Mar. Uh, Basically, his kind of 
plotting and planning and how is he manipulating the high lords all of it really works for me and i think the the highlight we get at the beginning with the forged letter and then later on we hear kind of all of the subtle manipulations that he's been doing in terms of like staying away from rand and staying in the servants quarters and you know going to inns and building a name where it doesn't seem like he's really interested in the politics all of that i thought was kind of like interesting table setting even if that's all of it all it is i'm like okay i'm ready to see the political side of this story as much as we've been seeing kind of the adventure side for the past few books. But other than that, I think you're right. We've basically got that and how do Taviran work in terms of what's going on in this chapter. Yeah, the one other thing in my notes is just um, while we have been playing the game of who's driving Matt and what's going on with Matt, um, I thought it was very clear to note that Tom has clocked that his luck has to do with um yeah uh chance right it's, it's like oh tom witnessing all of this has figured out the secret as well and is willing to play stones because there's not a lot of chance in yeah. it right um so i liked that and, and i think that probably speaks the most to your uh kind of explanation that the, this mm -hmm. is being in an expert's head it's like an expert can figure this out and yeah. is just more savvy than than that so that was the only other moment i highlighted and certainly um a fun chapter i i did kind of like the the ending where he's like just starts a story and it's like we fade out of that scene it yeah it felt like a, a play right how two characters would start a conversation and the lights would just dim and the the sound yeah. drop out slowly uh as as the scene moved to something else yeah, absolutely. And I think for Tom, part of what he is, is he is a storyteller, right? And so I, I like mm. to see the way both internally that he's kind of constructing, as you say, figuring out, you know, details and turning them into narratives, but then also just like getting to see a little bit of what makes Tom Tom, right? He is just personable and able to spin a tale. I think that worked really well. Um, the only other thing, I keep saying the only other thing, I'm going to do that eight times in this chapter probably, <laughs> uh, but the other thing that I kind of had to note here was Matt, I think, is really kind of getting a little more clearly defined in this chapter, in part because we're getting to see him from the outside instead of the inside, right? Um, some of the fun of reading Matt chapters from my perspective is that Matt is like a semi-self-aware narrator who often kind of thinks things about himself that are maybe not the most accurate. And so it's fun to see from Tom's perspective how he's kind of like putting together who Matt is, right? He's thinking about, as you said, kind of like the story about like chance, but then there's also, he realizes that Matt very clearly like cares about his friends when he can't say it's Taviran dummy. He immediately turns to maybe you're staying because of Rand's friendship. We learn that even Tom recognizes just how good Matt is at kind of the rogue class abilities, if you will. Um, and all of that I think is a, is a really fun character portrait of Matt, because if we've been asking before who is driving Matt, that's an interesting question on the inside, but it's just as valuable to know who Matt is from others' perspectives, right? To some degree, I don't care who's driving. I care what he does and who he is. And that I think we get maybe more clearly in this chapter than before. Um, that being said, like, who is Matt? He's, he's the kind of guy who gets distracted by playing a game of stones after 15 seconds. So it's it's a great <laughs> character sketch, but it's it's almost necessarily a slightly shallow one. Yeah, it feels like the eight-year-old I spend a lot of my time with uh, in, in many <laughs> ways. Um, in that list of things about who's driving Matt, though, I just wanted to note that the fact that he is being led so much by his suspicion of the Aes Sedai felt yeah. significant, that it's specifically Moraine here, but we know he the character from the past seems to have been wronged by the Aes Sedai. Yeah. And so um, he's been suspicious and that rises here. And so that is kind of the two dynamics at play. Oh, I think Moraine's out to get me. So she's spying on me, which is a reason I can't leave, which doesn't really make sense as a reason not to leave, no. but it's kind of just enough of that kind of hint of a reason that you, you understand. So um, it, yeah, it, it's really fun. And I continue to really like the Matt storyline. Mm -hmm. um, Tom, Tom also needs a reason to stay around. Um, and I keep flashing back. I was on a jury one time and it was two dudes who got in a bar fight. And um, the, we had one guy on the jury who's like, um, you can't prove to me. He couldn't have just turned and run away. And we're like, no, on a jury, you have to have it be proved that he wasn't, that he 
could yeah. right like you need the weird double negative of proof instead of the actual proof and so in all of these things it's like we are seeing the the reasons why they can't run away even though we didn't necessarily need those to be present or something like that right yeah. it's proving what we don't need here i've i've gotten lost in the language of it but it it always reminds me of that weird legal thing of like yeah, it's it's that you have to prove there was no way to running away, not to prove that he uh, chose not to run away or something yeah. like that. So um, it all was a lot of fun. And I continue to want to see um, what happens with Matt. Um, yeah. And Tom just is going to go for the ride. And I think that you highlighting uh, Matt's kind of disdain for the eyes to die really works. And the moment that I think kind of drove that home for me is there a moment where Ra or Matt is kind of like railing against Moraine and he doesn't want her help and what have you and then Tom suggests well what about Nynaeve and Matt says no she's still an Aes Sedai and that was the moment that I immediately went like oh that's different right everything up to that kind of mm -hmm. felt like Matt as we've seen him before but Matt always was kind of willing to say like they're Aes Sedai but not the girls from my hometown and that no longer seems to be the case anymore. Um, I think I can now officially say I am completely out of things to say about this chapter. Did you have any last thoughts before <laughs> we do our preview of next week? Uh, just because you just mentioned them, I want to say I kept wondering where are Egwene and Nynaeve, right? The, I mean, we maybe got real Egwene in the dream yep. sequence um, with Rand, but, but it's like, oh, well, that's the piece that's not here. And so when I said... At the beginning, it's really fun to have these characters all together. That's, of course, the group that's not yeah. being represented here. So, um, And that is not me giving a transition to next week because I have no idea whether it is or not. But next week, we will be talking about Chapter 5 Questioners and Chapter 6 Doorways. Which definitely include those characters. Okay. And that was me pausing because we forgot to talk at this before that, we started recording if we were doing two or three. Just we are two only reading two next chapters week. next week. Absolutely. <laughs> chapter five questioners and chapter six doorways. We will get an opportunity to join up with uh, some of the supergirls, as I frequently refer to them, because that's how the internet will often do so. Um, and I'm excited, right? We are now four chapters in, mm -hmm. as you said, somehow 100 pages into this book already. And there's a lot yet to come, even just from the introduction, right? We still need to catch up with some of our characters. We need to see where this is all actually moving to. And I'm really excited to see where this goes, mostly because I know exactly where it goes. Um, <laughs> any thoughts on what you are hoping for or what you expect next week? And then you can say the name of our podcast and I'll hit the stop recording button. Uh, I hope for more good times with our friends far away in a fantasy realm. And we will see if that happens next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.